Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this message, guest speaker Josh McDonald shares his story and teaches on what it means to be a Nazarite unto the Lord. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. Hey guys. All right. Let me get this set up real quick. Hey guys. Is there anybody that's 18 in here? Because you have to be, you can't be younger than 18 and be here, can you? Is there any younger, is there 17 year olds in here? Anybody? There's one snuck in here, bro. Uh, <laughs> how many 18 year olds in here? Raise your hand if you're 18. Okay, just got 19, 20, 21, 22. Okay, so 20 and 22 win so far. 23, 24, 25, and I won't go further because then you're going to get exposed too. (laughs) Well, Landry, wave your hand one more time. This is Landry, my wife. We celebrate 13 years on February 11th. And uh, yeah, so we've got a nine-year-old daughter named Amaya and a 12-year-old boy named Nehemiah. They're back in Kansas City hanging out with our students, um, like quite literally like out on outreach last night, just having fun. And so, but we're super honored to be here, humbled to be here, Um, really humbled to be here actually. Typically I go to churches that are not super on fire. (laughs) Uh, I, I make friends with these pastors that are longing for their, their congregations to get lit up, and those are the places I usually go to. So I don't often get to preach to people that are already on fire. Um, so we'll see what happens tonight. But it really is humbling and honoring to be here, guys, Billy and Mary Beth. Um, you know, Billy Humphrey and a couple of other, there's kind of like three or four guys out there that when I need encouragement to tell myself that I'm not crazy and that longing and burning for revival is real. Uh, you know, it was it, guys like Billy and Corey. I mean, I could just, without fail, go on YouTube and type in Lou Engle or type in Corey Russell or type in Billy Humphrey. And, and that really is true. That's who Billy's been to me from a distance. And then when the Grit podcast came out, we ate up every single episode on repeat in the gym. And it's always just been this ray of hope and encouragement to us, and so little did I know that surprise the Lord would, you know, of all the times that I've listened to you and Corey and others, you know, I never would have imagined that we would become friends and then even more so come and be with you guys. Um, But fun fact, I had a dream that I'd become friends with Billy Humphrey in the summer of 2022, and he had asked me in the dream to come and speak. And, And so here we are today. Um, but I'm going to preach a message tonight that probably is a little bit preaching to the choir. Um, and, and, but honestly, I need this tonight as much as you need it tonight. Because what I'm going to preach tonight is something that I said yes to when I was 45 days saved as an 18-year-old. And it's been a something that I've had seasons of giving my life to it, seasons where I got disillusioned and fell off from it. And often I end up preaching this message to preach myself back into what I said yes to when I was 18. 
And, and I don't, it's not like I've been preaching this message every time for, you know, 15 years, but in the last year specifically, uh, this message has re-come to the surface again, and it's probably the number one message that reignites me if I just need to remember why I'm born, you know? It's the number one thing, and it's this, it's this idea of Nazarites. Now, I know you guys, I, I get it. You probably get it. Like, you've been around it. You've heard it. But how many of you are, have heard a message about the Nazarites before in some way, shape, or form? Okay, half of you guys. I want to preach it. In a, I can preach this message about seven angles. So I've got to wait. No, I really can. I can take this message, and I can literally hit it from seven different points. But I believe the way that I'm going to communicate it to you tonight is going to make sense practically to longings in your heart. It's not going to be about not cutting your hair. It's not going to be about not being able to touch wine. It's not going to be about, you know, not being around dead things. It's, it's not, we're not going to get into the nitty gritty of what the Nazarite vow was, but we're going to talk about the heartbeat of what it was. But before I get into it, I got to give you the five minute version of my story so you can feel like you get caught up to where I'm at today. I'm 34. My wife's 32. I'll be 35 in June. And I'm originally from Michigan. Is there by chance anyone from Michigan in here? No, you guys are all from Atlanta. I saw one girl with a Clemson sweater on, though. Who had the Clemson sweater on? Are you from there? Hey, I had a dream. Get this. I had a dream. I know. I, I don't actually dream as much as you think, but I have these hallmark dreams. Um, I had a dream in, like, 2018 that I was standing on the 50-yard line at Clemson University and the revival came to the university, and it was a key marker of the ending of racism in America. Very random. I have that dream. That's it. It was just very vague. My dreams are very vague, but I know the message in the dream. I'm standing on the 50-yard line. There's a historic move of God happening on Clemson University, and I know it had something to do with the ending of racism. That's it. I have the dream. So funny. So fun fact, shortly after I have that dream, I'm in Orlando, Florida, my wife and I are in Orlando, Florida at the Send, the very first ever Send. You guys remember that? Anyone, was anybody there for that in 2018, 2019 or something? Well, we end up, so we're at that event. We end up going to Daytona Beach because my dad was randomly there vacationing. And we're at this Chipotle in Daytona Beach. And this group of young people come rolling up. And one of them has a Clemson shirt on. And I don't know who these young people are. I don't know who, if they're even saved. And I walk up to them, and I'm like, hey, what did I say? How did we even say it? Somehow we, we, somehow we figured out right away we're all Christians. And I'm like, I had this dream about Clemson, and the Holy Spirit falls at Chipotle. And quite literally, we are on the ground. People are on the ground travailing in the, in the outside patio of Chipotle. And so, hey, God's got something for Clemson University. There you have it. When I saw your sweater on today, I was reminded of that dream. Is it you? Like literally? There you go. There you go. And somehow it has something to do with racism. I don't know how that stuff works, <laughs> but God does. Okay, so I'm originally from Michigan, and I, I did not grow up in a Christian home until about halfway through. So my parents got divorced when I was a little kid, and my dad, my parents get divorced, my dad gets remarried. And he goes, has another divorce, unfortunately. <laughs> He's on marriage number three, and it's a godly one. The first two were pre-Jesus. But my dad, yeah, I think it was like 1998, my dad on November 11th, he was either 98 or 99, 
falls to his knees in the kitchen and surrenders his life to Jesus. His, he's in a very dark, depressed state. He's got a second divorce, and my dad gets saved. And all of a sudden, Jesus is a part of my home. And so I grow up, and it's like I'm 10 years old, and all of a sudden my dad's a Jesus freak. And we're watching Channel 13 every day, and it's like Charles Stanley and this, this pretty funny uh, couple, uh, the Van Impies, Jack Van Impey. And you guys are too young for this, but you probably have heard about it. This was during the time where this thing Y2K was about to happen, or so we thought. Anyone, has anyone never heard of this? Okay, you've all heard about it. Basically, basically, everyone panicked and thought that the world wasn't ready for the year 2000. That, that our computer systems and all of our technology didn't know what to do when it went from 1999 to 2000. And Jack Van Impey is preaching about the rapture, and this is the moment. And so I get introduced to this version of Christianity that's like about the end times and the rapture. Left Behind series is out at that same exact time. And, uh, and, and so this is my introduction to Jesus. But also, my parents were not charismatic at all. To this day, are not charismatic. They, so I grew up in an evangelical cessationist megachurch. Very Calvinist, very cessationist. And so I'm in this wrestle as a 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old because I believe the gospel's real because I've watched my dad get saved. But in my mind, in my mind, I'm going, I know people must have some kind of moment where it becomes real to them, but I don't want to do it now because I can't have fun if I get saved. So I, I don't know that you can have a relationship with Jesus. I don't know about Holy Spirit. I've never heard of that stuff. So I'm associating Christianity with what you don't get to do now. <laughs> right? And at that time, I'm 13, and I'm starting to smoke weed with my friends and, and just being crazy in that way. And so I remember when I was 13 years old, it's the summer when I'm going into my freshman year in high school. I've already started smoking weed and drinking with my friends. And uh, is anyone in here wired to do everything 110% or nothing at all? You have a very intense, like, addictive personality. And it can be really good for Jesus, but you can also go on a rabbit trail and get way too into something for a season. Okay, so that was me. And it was a real problem for me with drugs because the first time I ever got high, I was like, I never, I never want to not be high <laughs> ever again. I want to stay high forever. That's the best thing in the world. And I figured out real quickly that I could keep trying to steal 10 bucks from my mom's purse or I could figure out how to come up with $100, sell it to my friend, smoke for free, and we could get a little thing going. So I started selling drugs when I was 13 years old. And I made that decision when I was 13. I remember I made the decision that I'm going to get saved when I'm 95. Because the, the likelihood of me dying in a car accident, because I believe people, I literally believe that people would go to hell without Jesus. I actually believe that. But I was like, but I'm not going to like die now. Like I'm not going to get into a car accident. I'm not going to have something tragic happen to me. Like, like this is not going to happen. So I'm going to do this and I'll get saved when I'm 90. And I just went crazy in high school. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Ended up dropping out of high school. Moved in with this guy who's like 25. I'm 17. And we are like knee deep. And by this point, I'm snorting cocaine. We're selling heroin. I'm in a whole world. I'm in crack houses in the middle of the night in Saginaw, Michigan. And when I'm 17 years old, so I, I think I'm, I'm living it up. I'm 17. I'm selling dope. I'm like, I think I'm just killing it. I mean, young Jeezy's my disciple, or my discipler, he's discipling me. You know, rap music is what I'm listening to. Like, this is the life. Like, 
17, selling drugs, living on my own. This is it, right? That's like where I'm at. And, but then I never, I had never gotten the flu before by myself. You're going to laugh. You're like, wait, what? So I get the flu and I'm throwing up and I got a fever and I don't know what to do. So I go home. (laughs) I'm like, mom, dad, I'm sick. Like I I don't, so I go to my dad's house. No, this is a true story. So I got the flu and I'm at my dad's house and my dad goes to work. And I just needed someone to take care of me. You know, I'm like, I'm 17 here. Like, I get the flu. <laughs> you know? And I'm at my dad's house. He leaves for work. And maybe an hour after he leaves for work, I hear a knock on my dad's front door. And I, and I go to the door, and there's two police officers in the driveway. And I open the door, and the cop goes, are you Josh McDonald? I said, yes. He said, put your hands behind your back. You're under arrest for delivering and manufacturing of heroin and cocaine. I'm dead serious, 17 years old. Turns out a friend of ours got busted and we didn't know it six months earlier and began to work with the police and I'd been selling to an undercover cop for six months. So my hands are behind my back. They let me go to the living room and put an outfit on because you're 17. I don't know what it's like here, but you're an adult when you're 17 in Michigan. And that takes me on a journey of being behind bars for the next year. After that year, I go right back to it. I mean, like, instantly like the day I get out two hours later like right back at it and I end up getting in trouble again and I find myself in a crazy situation at 18 years old with several felonies and I'm I'm, I'm done I'm in trouble and intervention happens between so behind the scenes the prosecuting attorney of my city goes to is a deacon at my dad's church my grandparents own the most successful real estate uh, realty company in the city, and they're very respected in my hometown. I come from this pretty gnarly family of athletics. My uncle Bob played in the NFL. My uncle Jim is a professional boxer. I have a pretty wild, so my family's a little bit known in my hometown. And a backroom meeting is had, and they're like, this kid's 18 years old on his way to prison. And the prosecuting attorney sits down. If you guys don't don't know what a prosecuting attorney is, but they kind of, they carry a lot of weight. And they basically go, we've heard about this place in a city called Traverse City, Michigan. There's this program called House of Hope. It's basically a boarding school that's like Teen Challenge, but a little bit different. There's been a bunch of young people in our church that have gotten their lives turned around there. And a deal gets worked out. You can either, you can either follow through and go to prison or get sent away for a year to this program. And depending on the situation, da 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 so I choose to go to the program. And so I get checked into the program in August of 2008. And, the, and I get introduced to a whole different world of Jesus. These guys are full of the Holy Spirit. They are on fire. They're talking about God like he's real, like they've had coffee with him or something, you know. And, and people, I mean, speaking in tongues, I'm seeing healings. And they're weirdly obsessed with these people that pray 24-7 in Kansas City. So I get introduced to this whole like world and the Lord begins to chip away at my heart, August, September, October. I mean, all my buddies are getting saved. Every time I made a pact with a guy that we weren't going to do the Jesus thing, he would get saved. And I, and I kept being the last man standing and then a new guy would come in. I'd pray on him. Bro, these guys are soft. 
these kids are soft, bro. They're not in here for real crimes. They're here because their parents sent them here. Dude, don't get into the Jesus thing. Like, we're going to make a pact, and we're going to sneak stuff, and we're going to da-da-da-da. And then he would get saved. And this keeps happening. All the dudes that were supposed to be with me kept getting saved. And so secretly, I'm starting to struggle because I'm in these chapel services on Wednesday mornings, and it's constantly Holy Spirit's breaking out. And I'm like... Secretly on the inside, I'm the last. I'm like being. I'm left out at this point. Like I'm left out. These dudes are loving Jesus now, and I finally come to the end of myself on November 11th, 2008, and I end up giving my life to Jesus. And I call my dad that night, and turns out we got saved on the same day, about 10 years apart from each other. Isn't that crazy? So fast forward. That's November 11th, 2008. Fast forward to December 27th, they come busting into my room at like three o'clock in the morning. And I say, they, my house leaders. And they come busting into my, my room of four dudes and they say, pack your bags. We're leaving in an hour to go to Kansas City because we're going to this conference. So I'm like, all right. And so we're, we, we get in a 16-hour ride in a van, you know, to Kansas City. It's my first time even like being in the wild again. You know, like I've been in this program, so I'm just overwhelmed by all the girls there's 20,000 people in this auditorium. I've been locked up in this spot for four months. I love Jesus, but I'm still way worldly. Like, I think men that raise their hands in worship are way weird. I'm like, why do you do that? Like, aren't you, like, tough? Like, what's the deal? Like, I am in my own brain space the whole time. Like, I am somewhere else. But here I am in this crowd of 20,000 people in the opening night of that conference. A man takes the stage. And he pray, and I'm, I'm, keep in mind, I am 18 years old, been saved for 45 days, you know? And this guy gets up on the stage and he preaches this message about John the Baptist and about forerunners. And he's talking about forerunner messengers. And he's, I'm like, what is this dude talking about? And he's talking about living your life in light of the return of Jesus and fasting and prayer. And, you know, he's just preaching this message. And he's saying, he's saying crazy stuff. He's like, he, I, remember, I, remember, I remember him saying, this current lukewarm cotton candy Christianity, it's not going to cut it in the days of the Antichrist, you know. And, and I'm like sitting there, this 18-year-old kid, I don't really understand what he's talking about. But I'm, I've only been saved for 45 days, but the Holy Spirit that's in me is no different than the Holy Spirit that's in me today. And whatever that dude was on, man, it, it was touching something on the inside of me. And I know that on the inside of me, I'm being called to something that's like worth it. Like it's bigger than myself. Like whatever that is, like sure, you know. And he gets up and that night he prophesies and he says, there's 20,000 people there. He goes, this is in 2008. He goes, I believe that there's 1,000 of you in the auditorium that are gonna get marked by this to such a degree that you will live your life from this point forward. It will be your occupation to be a John the Baptist forerunner messenger. You will give your life to fasting and prayer, living in light of the return of Jesus. He goes, the Lord's gonna make it work for your money. Some of you are gonna go back home. Some of you are gonna come here. And I remember him going, he goes, he goes, I don't doubt that most of you are gonna get marked with this kind of spirit. I'm not talking about you guys. <laughs> I'm talking about a thousand of you, that this will become your full-time occupation. And of course, like way more than a thousand people run to the altar, you know? 
this conference was crazy. This is the year where he was making us memorize the book of Revelation after sessions and made us sign up for these seven commitments that you would fast weekly, pray daily, read the whole book of Revelation every day. And it was something crazy like that. And all these people were signing up to go all in, you know. And here I am just like, yeah, whatever this is, I'm in, you know. And I didn't even go up to the altar because I don't even do altar calls yet. But by the end of that conference, I did one hand in the air. And to this day, to this day, my good friend makes fun of me for it. He's like, I remember when you went from here to here. He's like, I was there. <laughs> uh, and, um, but I remember standing in the crowd that night, and I didn't even say it out loud. I just said it in my heart. I said, whatever that means, I'll give my life to it. Fast forward, a bunch of miracles happen. I really start laying a hold of God, and I moved to Kansas City, Missouri in August of 2009. And so I moved to Kansas City. I'm eight months saved. My grandma is down to pay for school. And my dad's like, I'll give you 200 bucks a month for groceries. So I got like 500 bucks a month in support. And I meet Landry right away. I'm like, oh, I still, I still got a thing with girls, you know. And so I'm, I'm here and I'm on fire, but I'm also going to flirt with the cutest girl I see right away. And that was her. And it was that simple. It wasn't any more spiritual than that. We hit it off right away. Didn't have to deal with any breakups. And so we get married. She's 19. <laughs> so Landry's 19. I'm 21. I think we have $600 a month in support for, combined as a married couple. And our rent was what? 640. So we got negative 40. And 15 years later... Now, we're not condoning this, but 15 years later, here we are, and it's been the craziest ride of our life, um, and, uh, you know, and so we have given, I'm 35, 34 now, but I've given from 19 to the time that I stand here before you, I have, for the best of my ability, with the grace of God, have chosen to stay committed to what I said yes to when I was 18. And that was to live a lifestyle in my teenage years, my 20s, now in my 30s, to say I'm never going to grow up. Um, and if I feel like I'm growing up, i got to fight to grow down. And I want to keep that wild fire in my eyes. And, I, and everything in life consistently wages war against it. And I find myself even in a season right now, one of the most challenging, painful seasons my family's ever went through. And so me preaching tonight on this message is me reminding my own self of what I said yes to. And I walked out through my 20s and I feel an invitation from the Lord saying, don't forget like the, the things that you said yes to. And so when I talk about Nazarites now for the next about 20 minutes before I pray for you guys. I'm mostly not talking about you doing something like some radical thing, so to say. If that's what the Lord tells you to do, awesome. I'm talking about a heart posture that you can say yes to right now that I imagine most of you already have. But you can begin to say yes to a lifestyle right now to say, uh, it, it's, it's, it's the old Misty Edwards song, How Far Will You Let Me Go?, how abandoned will you let me be? And I want to live a lifestyle that is stewarding the fire of God inside of me. And I want that fire to go crazier, wilder, and I want my faith to only grow, not dim down when life gets a hold of me and I get domesticated. Like right now, I'm in a season where I'm trying to get green grass 
and I got myself in all kinds of weird domestic stuff. <laughs> and I'm going, Lord, as I get older, life gets a hold of me. I got to worry about house stuff. I got to worry about kids' school. But Lord, I want to, I remember the day when I would jump off any cliff with you. I remember when I moved my family to New York City with no money on a word of the Lord and lived there for two years. And I mean, I'm going, Lord, I, I, there's parts of me that don't have that wild fire in me anymore. And so I'm preaching myself into this tonight as much as I'm calling you to it. But in number six, there's this concept that comes forth where it says, any man or a woman that desires to take this special vow of a Nazarite. And these Nazarites, they basically what was happening was, is people would get this longing and this desire to have seasons where they were set apart for the Lord in a special way. They would say no to this, no to this, no to this, not because of legalism, but it was a way of them saying, I'm going to go for a season. Maybe it was a six-month season. Maybe it was a 10-month season, but I'm going to have a season where I'm going to forgo certain pleasures and certain things that are not even an issue, that aren't even sin, but I'm going to lay aside even some normal earthly pleasures to carve out a space between me and God. I want to get rid of distractions. And so they had all these things they would do, and you would know a Nazarite when you saw one, right? They would have their hair long, and there'd be all these different things, right? I'm not talking about the outward expression, so to say, of it, but has anyone here, I'm sure you have, at some point in your journey with the Lord, you've just had like a holy unsettling on the inside of you of I know there's more, and it feels almost uncomfortable. Have never been there before? And then, and maybe even in those seasons, there's things that you're doing that aren't even sin, but it's just a distraction. It's just a little bit excessive. And it's not even the Lord would say it's sin, but you're like, in this season, I got this weird unsettling on the inside of me where I want more of God. And also at the same time, some of my desires and hobbies even are starting to not hit the same. So you ever been there before? I just walked this gnarly corporate uh, investment firm dude in New York City through this. Who? Because there are people all over the earth that are starting to feel this, but they don't have language for it. I'm in New York City a couple months ago, and I'm sitting with this, uh, this investment banker guy. We're literally on Wall Street, sitting in a, in a blue bottle coffee on Wall Street. And he's processing with me this feeling that he has that is really unsettling and he can't put his finger on it. He's like, but I'm going over to my Christian friend's house and we play poker and drink bourbon and no one's getting drunk. But for some reason, I don't know what it is. It's just feeling weird and I just don't have the desire for it anymore. And I feel like maybe the Lord's telling me I shouldn't drink. I don't even have a problem with drinking. I don't know what's going on with me. And he's like describing all of this internal turmoil. And I'm like, you ever heard of the Nazarites? And he's like, no, because he's, he's sitting with me because he's trying to talk to his Christian buddies about what he's feeling and no one knows what the heck he's talking about. They're like, bro, I don't know what your deal is. Maybe you need like counseling or something. I don't know why you're so unsettled. Like, you know, like, like they're interpreting as something's wrong with you. And he goes, I don't think it's that. I can't figure it out. I talked to this dude in a coffee shop on Wall Street for five minutes, and it unlocks everything he's been feeling in his heart. I send him a Lou Engle message, and he's like, dude, what the heck is this? And my friend is now in New York City doing his own version of a Nazarite consecrated season. He chose to put aside his passion and hobby of bourbon for a season, 
and he's fasting on Wednesdays, leading the charge of an investment firm in Wall Street. And God, I'm just seeing this, and I'm having these conversations over and over and over again with people, and it's like, wow, Lord, you really are doing something. And so, are are you tracking with me? Now, I want to get into just a couple of pivotal moments because it's not sometimes, and I don't want to, I don't want to set you up to think that you're going to take over the world and be the next Samson or the next Samuel, but I do want to cast high faith because there's personal dynamics of seasons of set-apart consecration, but what you don't know is saying yes to this longing or this wooing away to a season with the Lord, what you don't know is it could be shifting something far beyond your own passions, it could be breaking something open in the spirit. You don't even realize it. Watch this. So throughout the Old Testament, what would happen was, is when Israel was in pivotal moments of crisis, he would raise up consecrated Nazarites that would be used to turn major moments around. Major moments around. And what's odd about it is they all happened through barren women. Weird. I think Daniel did some sort of Nazarite lifestyle too. We'll talk about that in a minute. That's a different story. But between Samuel, Samson, these, and John the Baptist, the interesting part of their story is it, was, it wasn't just young guys getting marked to be set apart. It was during these sovereign moments of history and through barren women who were desperate. It's a wild moment. In Judges 13, we have this story. Anyone ever heard of the Samson story? I'm just going to breeze through it real quick. Samson's mom can't have kids. And she's gripped and she's burdened and she gets a visitation from the Lord I'm about to do something really sovereign. I'm going to open up your womb, but the boy that I'm putting in your womb, I am going to mark him and set apart to and set him apart to be a Nazarite. And while the Philistines are plummeting Israel, I'm going to raise up this set apart dude who I'm going to give supernatural strength to defeat an army. But what's interesting about Samson's story is if you look at it close enough, the Lord actually asked the mom to take the same vow. Hey, because this son is coming through you, I want you to stay away from this and this and this. So Samuel's mom recognizes the season that she's in and she goes, I got to take my life serious because God's given me a promise for this boy. But do you think Samson had a free will? Of course he did. So at some point, you got you to get into the nitty-gritty and think through these stories a little bit. These are real dudes, and we know Samson's story. He was a messed up dude. But somewhere along the way, as he's being two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, Samson's mom is having to steward the word of the Lord and tell her son, I had this encounter. This is who God says you are. And along the way, Samson had to buy into that somewhere. It wasn't like he just supernaturally like didn't have a free will and had no control over his life. So somewhere along the way, Samson is going, I'm going to do this. 
And who would know, right, that his yes to say, to say yes, honestly, is something that God told his mom. He ends up becoming this great warrior who really turns the tide in a very critical, nasty war. And it's a rough time, too, because it's the season of the judges, and we won't go into that. So then we fast forward, and we got ourselves in another mess of human history. You want to know what that mess is? The mess is there's no shepherds on the earth that have the word of the Lord to instruct the people of God. What a mess. Could you imagine right now in 2024 if you didn't have one YouTube video to watch from a preacher? You didn't have one pastor in America. Not one. Not one. Could you, can you even fathom this reality of a time in history where it says that there's, because it says in 1 Samuel 3, the word of the Lord was rare in those days and there was no widespread revelation. That's a disastrous time for a people who have no shepherd, no prophetic voice, no prophet, nobody carrying the word of the Lord. And it's in that season that God looks down at a woman named Hannah, yet again barren. She's so burdened that her prayers, when she opens her mouth to pray, it says that no words came out of her mouth. Go read all of this in 1 Samuel 1. So much so that I think it was Eli looks at her and goes, what's wrong with you? Are you drunk? Sometimes there's a, there's a burden so deep on the inside of you that you really can't express words. Has anyone ever had a deep longing or a deep burden that you never said out loud answered in front of you? Where you realize that sometimes intercession is beyond what you say like this on a microphone, a prayer set. Sometimes there's a, there's a place of intercession sometimes where the hour is so crucial and the crisis is so big that you just don't have real language but it's in you and it's eating away at you and God would even look at that and say I see the intercession on the inside that doesn't even have words and it's in that season where yet again just like the Samson story she gets a visitation from the Lord, and the word of the Lord is, I'm raising up this son through you. I'm going to open up your womb. He's going to be a prophet to the nations. He's going to be a set-apart Nazarite. So, this, so Samuel comes on the scene. He's living a Nazarite, set-apart, focused life on Jesus and the Lord and, his, and, and what the Lord has asked him to be, Right? Well, okay, great. The drought's ended. We got, a, we got a prophet. But it's way bigger than that. Now we're in a time of history where not only do we have an answer to this drought of no prophetic voices to lead the people, not only is it that, but because we've got this man who said yes to the Nazarite lifestyle, he can now hear clearly, and the Lord's able to entrust him and say, hey, there's a teenage boy out in a field. He ain't anything special, <laughs> but he's a man after my own heart. I'm going to make that dude king of Israel. I'm going to show you a new way that I raise up kings and leaders. So one mom or one woman who can't have kids, who's burdened, prays a prayer so big that words can't express it. 
Out of it comes a son named Samuel who's set apart as a Nazarite to be the voice of the Lord to a people. But more than just that, he's going to hear the word of the Lord about a very specific teenage boy that nobody really knows about. Super dysfunctional family, not preferred like the other brothers. Lonely, hanging out with sheep. But this dude's got a hold of God's heart out there when no one's looking and the Lord goes, I'm going to defy all odds and I'm going to raise up that dude to be king. Well, that dude becomes king. Okay, great. Awesome, Samuel. You did it. <laughs> you know? You, 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 okay, but the story gets crazier. One man's yes. One woman's burden. One man's choice to live a Nazarite lifestyle. Ends a drought of people that can hear God for the people. Identifies David. Now, fast forward all the way to 2 Samuel 7. David's found rest from his enemies. He's now king. He's sitting in his, he's sitting in his, you know, beautiful new home. I mean, this is his season, dude. This dude went through it. No one's got a, I mean, is anybody in here, has anybody in here became good friends with some dude and then the dude gave you his beautiful daughter and then turns on you and is trying to throw spears at you at the family gathering? Anyone ever been in that season before? Yeah, don't get crazier than that. It's a bad season. It's a yeah, that's a bad season. You never been, none of y'all been through that one. Crazy, psycho, demonized father-in-law giving his life to kill you. It's his number one focus of his life is to kill you. And you didn't even really sign up for it at all. You got your, you didn't even try to get yourself into this mess. This dude's been through it and back, and now he's king. He's got his season. It's time for a sabbatical. 2 Samuel 7, David's been given rest from all of his enemies. I don't know about you. If I'm in David's spot after everything I've been through and I'm sitting in the palace, I'm going to be taking a year off. I'm looking around. I'm going, I hated the way Saul painted this place. I'm going to get my wife in here. We're going to get a new paint job. I don't, you know, Saul was a Rolls Royce guy. I'm more of a BMW guy. We're, this is my season. We're going to swap the cars. I mean, David's in a good spot. He's in a good spot. But instead... He's got something else on his mind. He's still a man after God's heart. And he goes, it's not, this is all in 2 Samuel 7. I'm being super 2024 about this. You, you, you read between the lines when you, go, when, you go, when you go read the chapter for yourself. He goes, it's not right that I get all of this, but God doesn't have a house. Okay. Sweet, cool, Dave wants to build a God a house. No, it's bigger than that. God goes, holy smokes. And he goes and has a conversation with Nathan. And he goes, Nathan, did you hear what David just said? He said he wants to build me a house. I would never asked anyone to build me a house. I didn't tell him to do that. And David unlocks this longing on the inside of God for a house of his, his glory to dwell. He didn't even ask David to do that, but he's found this man who is pursuing things that are so deep in his heart. So he goes, oh my gosh, you tell David that that's a really good idea. Is <laughs> basically what he says. But now it gets crazier. This moved my heart so much that I see it fit from the Messiah, my son, the whole plan of human redemption to come through that man's family line. So one mom 
burdened and barren, bursts a son who says, I'm going to take serious what, that, what the word of the Lord was to my mom. And little does he know his life before the Lord to identify. I mean, you ever just give a prophetic word to someone saying, hey, you're going to do big things with your life. Well, little did you know your stewardship to hear God to tell some kid that he's going to do something big with his life could be the next Reinhard Bonnke. But in this scenario, quite literally, Samuel's lifestyle of being a Nazarite made him laser sharp to hear God that quite literally through his obedience to identify, as, to identify a teenage boy, that then the, ultimately it would end. And now we've got a plan in place and a bloodline for the Messiah that we've been waiting for to come through. What the heck? Who could have thought that a simple yes to be obedient to God would produce the Messiah? So then we fast forward, and now we find ourselves in the most crucial, pivotal moment of human history up to this point. It's the moment where that Messiah is now being born. You guys know the story. Mary gets pregnant. By God. <laughs> And yet again, in this moment, God decides to visit Elizabeth and goes, I'm going to raise up a Nazarite son through you in this hour. He's going to be the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 40 of a voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the earth for the coming of the Lord. So John the Baptist is now born and he's living this fasted lifestyle in the woods preparing people for the most crucial hour of human history. And I want to say this. I don't believe John's lifestyle was radical at all. I believe it was the only lifestyle that made sense because he knew what time it was. Chosen makes him out to be Creepy John. And you guys ever watch The Chosen? They call him Creepy John. We got this idea that John the Baptist is just this wild dude. No, no, no. John the Baptist's lifestyle would not be radical if, he, if everybody knew what time it was. If you actually knew that the, the long-awaited promises are here, you wouldn't be, you know, double cheeseburger ain't just ain't it right now. Maybe or maybe it is. Coke Zero for Billy. You might, even the Coke Zero might, would it might be even go in a season like this. It's the only lifestyle that makes sense. He's burning, he's shining, he's, he knows what hour it is. And it's the only lifestyle that makes sense. But then John becomes this prototype of the kind of people that God wants to raise up as a normal lifestyle longing for his return. Because Jesus goes way out on a limb by making the famous statement that this dude, John the Baptist, he's the greatest man ever born of a woman. AKA, pay attention to John's lifestyle. If there's one guy in the Bible you really want to pay attention to, mind that gold of John the Baptist. Because when Jesus said it's the greatest born of woman, he thought through Moses, he thought through Elijah, he thought through the gang, Abraham. He thought through all of that when he made a bold enough statement to say, this guy, who you get about three chapters total in the whole Bible about, He's the greatest man ever born of a woman. But you mind that gold of who John the Baptist was? He understood the revelation of Jesus as bridegroom and so much more. And as an 18-year-old, I heard a message kind of like this preached to me. 
And I didn't know what it looked like, because it actually looks way more practical than you think. If you hung out with me for a day, you're actually, I'm actually a real dork, and I, 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 I delete my Instagram account three times a day because it's distracting me, and then I re-download it. Like, my entire four hours a day in the prayer room is trying to be focused. Like, I'm actually, you know, I try to fast once a week, but I break it all the time. Every long fast, probably pretty much I've ever done with someone, I broke halfway through. Like, <laughs> but the Lord's not looking at, the perfection of it, he's looking at the reach of a heart. And what I know is that John was touching something about longing for his return or longing for his coming. And Jesus is now saying, this man, John, is an example of the kind of burning heart that I want to put in hundreds and thousands and millions of believers that they would live a watching waiting, fasting, consecrated, set-apart lifestyle saying, I'm daring to believe that if 2 Peter 3 says, I've got a way that I could live that would hasten the return of the Lord, then I want to make sure I'm a part of that story. Can you believe that according to 2 Peter 3, you can make choices that speed up the timeline of the return of Jesus? Wild. I know, right? It's wild. It sounds almost heretical. And if you look up the definition of the word hasten, it's crazy. It's to cause something to happen sooner than its original intent. That's how much Jesus takes serious your small yes to live a set-apart life, whatever that means. Whatever that means. And so here's what I want to call us to tonight. Oh, I have more, but I'm not going to go there, actually. I was going to share a couple of the dreams. All right, I'll do it real quick. Real quick, real quick, real quick. So, <laughs> so here's, here, here's where I get myself in trouble with preaching this message, is my is young sons and daughters that we disciple end up doing it. And then, and then, and then I'm constantly convicted because they take it way too far, <laughs> you know? I got this young buddy named Sim, who we just, my wife and I love so much. He's this Haitian kid, and he's, he just turned 20. And he's been running with my wife and I uh, doing college campus stuff for the last year. And I mean, this kid a year ago is a drastically different kid who he is today. And I'm not saying this to be like, if you're really radical, this is what it looks like. I actually hate that stuff. I want to take any yoke off of you. I'm just giving you an example. This dude heard me. This, so I would bring this 19-year-old kid with me on trips. And he'd hear me preach this message all last year. And it finally hit him. And he and this other kid that I run with have been doing a 21-day Daniel fast every single month for like seven months straight now. No meats, no sweets, and they're just loving God. And so, so I come out of the summer leading ATC last summer, and I'm on total vacation mode. I'm exhausted. We're just, I'm doing nothing. I'm chilling. And it's like August, September, and then September rolls around, and young Sim, he pulls me out in the hallway at, at, at the university. He said, hey, Josh, I think Think I'm gonna do a? I think I'm gonna do a ten day fast. What do you think? And I'm like, bro, you always are fasting, like you know. And I'm like, and I'm like, yeah, do it. You should do it, bro. Yeah, get it. And two minutes after our conversation, Holy Spirit convicts me because He's like, you ain't fasted in months. You called Him to this lifestyle, and I feel this thing from the Lord going, Are you gonna fast with your sons and your daughters? So I go back to Him. I'm, like, I'm gonna do it with you, bro. I'm going to do it with you, man. 
And I didn't make it. I made it three days. <laughs> but I was tired. I was very tired in that season. We had just come out of a grind of a summer. And I was, I was in a weird funk and a swirl and, you know, thinking I'm not called to ministry anymore. And, you know, I'm, I'm all discouraged. Am I really marked for Gen Z? I don't even know. Actually, it was, it was when Billy, when Billy hit me up at that time too. But I go on this fast with my buddy. I had not had a prophetic dream since April. It's been six months. I haven't dreamt nothing. Definitely haven't fasted nothing. And for three nights in a row, God gives me dreams. Three nights in a row to confirm my calling, to confirm what, I'm, what, you know, what he's doing in this hour. But I have this dream. I'm going to share just this one dream, actually. But I have this dream. And in the dream, I'm preaching in a room full of leaders. Bunch of leaders there. I'm preaching. And I'm preaching to them two messages at the same time. It was really weird. I'm preaching to them Mark 10 and Amos 2 in the same message. Mark 10 is where Jesus is rebuking them because they wanted to keep the children away from him. And he goes, no, 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 let the children come to me. So I'm preaching to these leaders out of Mark 10, and I'm telling them, you have created, I'm like preaching this message. I'm like, you're creating religious systems that are keeping the young people from burning. And, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm like, you're causing the young priests to not burn. And I'm preaching, I'm preaching Mark 10 to them. And I remember, I remember quoting Mark 10 in the dream. And then I pivot and I, and, I, and I go, Amos 2 says to you leaders, it says this, I've, I, I commanded some of your sons, or I, I raised up some of your sons to be prophets and some of your sons to be Nazarites, but you commanded them not to prophesy and you commanded them not to drink wine. In Amos 2, God God has a fight to pick with religious leaders that were talking Nazarites out of their devotion for God. And it was in that dream, and it was in, that, it was in September after that dream where I made a decision. And I said, I'm signing back up, God. And, I, and, as, and I, I, as an 18-year-old, I stood in that auditorium, and I said yes to something. And I remember being 18, 19 years old, moving to Kansas City, and guys like Corey Russell and Alan Hood and these dudes, I mean, looking back at it, like, these guys seemed like they were just so far and so, like, wise and so old, and they were, like, 31, 32 years old, and here I am today at 34 going, oh, my gosh, and, I've, and, I, come, and I think the Lord is winking at me and encouraging me, but I, I keep asking the question, I'm going, Lord, when I would sit in that room when I was 19 and hear those guys burning and hearing those guys saying what they were saying, there was a lifestyle that I watched them live. I watched them sit in that chair at 6 a.m. year after year after year, and now in a blink of an eye, I'm that age. And there's 19-year-olds who would look at me and go, whoa, and I'm asking myself the question. I'm going, Lord, have I done it? Did I do what I said yes to when I was 18? And have I paid the same price that Billy and Corey and these guys have? And so I'm not just preaching this message to you as some guy who's done it. I'm preaching this message to you because literally I feel fire in my spirit right now reminding me to keep, to keep doing what I said I was going to do. And so if you're in this room tonight, and there's stuff that I said tonight 
if there's stuff that I said where you're going, yes, that's who I am, I'm all in, amen, I wanna pray for you. But some of you are provoked, you're convicted. Maybe you felt this way a couple years ago and you just let some funny stuff get in there. Or maybe some of you are convicted to the core because you know that there's more in God. You know that there's something more, but you've given so much to earthly pursuits. And, not, and what I don't mean by that is you shouldn't be really pursuing careers and you should make a lot of money. I hate the poverty spirit. You should have money and cars and you should, you should go after it and you should live as blessed as you possibly can. I believe in that stuff with my whole heart. But what I'm talking about is a lifestyle where there's an, there's a, there's an improportionate balance of fleshly indulgence versus feeding spirit. You show up on a Thursday night and give it your all, but Friday through Wednesday is a lifestyle that looks a whole lot different. And so you do touch his goodness, you touch some things, but you're in that wrestle that you weren't meant to be in because God, you were made to be all in 100%, not for moments, not for gatherings, not for conferences. God is looking for all of you, and sometimes in those moments where you discern he wants all of me, he will even ask you maybe for 30 days, maybe for 20 days, it's, it's no football, maybe it's no Instagram, maybe it's fast one day a week, but you can sense I'm giving, maybe you're in this room and you're going, he's giving me language, this makes sense, oh, I want to do that. I want to sign up for that first and foremost, not so that you can change history and the Messiah come through your family line. <laughs> we, we went all the way. <laughs> that would be a bad soundbite. That'd be a bad soundbite. Not just for that, first and foremost, that you would live a life burning. Because I'm telling you this much, I think John the Baptist touched something that was far beyond him knowing the promise that was coming. I imagine in the journey it was his joy and delight because he was touching something anyways. If you're identifying with this reality in some way, shape, or form, and you just are going, hey, I want to just run up to that altar today, not so that some anointed dude can pray for me, but I want to just come up and make a statement tonight on January 25th that I want to live this set-apart lifestyle. I feel the calling. I feel something in the spirit. I feel something tugging at my heart right now. I feel it. I don't know what it's going to look like, but the least I can do is stand up out of my seat and just go stand before him. If that's you, do not waste a single second. I want you to come forward. Remember, his burden is easy and his yoke is light. This isn't heavy. This is celebration. If Song of Solomon 4.9 says that one glance from my eye ravishes the Father's heart, imagine how he's looking down at you right now. Do you sense an angry father going, get your crap together? Or do you sense that loving bridegroom going, I see this. Second Chronicles says that he's searching to and fro throughout the earth looking for hearts that are fully his. So worship team, you just take us wherever you want to go. And right now, you just do your own business with God. Father, I thank you that there's a lifestyle in you that tastes better than any drink the world has to offer. There's a set-apart life that's better than anything. 
God, I ask that you would raise up forerunner messengers in this room that would live in their 20s a fasted lifestyle. How Daniel and his friends set themselves apart in Babylon and said, we will not go the way of Nebuchadnezzar. Lord, release your fire. Lord, release your fire. Yeah. God, release your fire. God, I'm asking for the Isaiah 4-4, the spirit of burning that cleanses and washes. God, I thank you for a new season starting today. Lord, release your fire. back. Let all your tears out. You begin to cry out. Words that can't even be uttered. Some of you are having that Hannah moment right now. Some of you are having that Hannah moment right now. It's deep on the inside. You don't have words for it. And the Lord would say, I see that prayer. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at gatekeepersatl. We'll see you in the next message.